Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the deadliest tornado in history, the execution of Mussolini, and Joan of Arc's arrival at the Siege of Orleans. The events took place on April 26th, 28th, and 29th. April 26, 1989. The deadliest known tornado strikes central Bangladesh, killing upwards of 1,300 people, injuring 12,000, and leaving as many as 80,000 homeless. There is a lot of uncertainty about the death toll, but all estimates indicate that it was the most devastating. The tornado affected the cities of Dalatpur and Satoria the most. The area that the tornado hit had been in a state of drought for six months prior to the storm. The Ganges Basin, comprising the entirety of Bangladesh, is frequented by severe weather. Such storms that are capable of producing tornadoes in this region are most common during the pre- and post-monsoon months. An average of six tornadoes occur annually in Bangladesh, with peak activity in April. The pre-monsoon months, from March to May, display the most favorable conditions for severe weather. During this time, convective energy and wind shear are conducive to the development of rotating thunderstorms. Instability is greatest over West Bengal, India, and adjacent areas of Bangladesh. Storms frequently develop in this region and travel southeast across the country. On April 25, 1989, an area of low pressure propagated over Bihar and West Bengal, with the trough extending east across Bangladesh and into Manipur. The system remained largely stationary throughout the day and into April 26. On that day, another low approached from Madhya Pradesh and in conjunction with the ridge over China, the pressure gradient became tighter across Bangladesh. Warm, moist air flowed northeast from the Bay of Bengal while cool, dry air flowed south from the Himalayas. In the upper levels of the atmosphere above the low, strong westerly winds from the jet stream created ample wind shear, a key factor in the development of supercell thunderstorms capable of producing tornadoes. The jet stream became particularly intense on April 26th, with a reading from Dhaka observing 150 mile an hour winds at a height of 35,000 feet. An established dry line over western Bangladesh served as a focal point for the thunderstorm development. By 12 o'clock, all of these factors were present to produce severe thunderstorms across the country. Around 12.30, a tornado touched down near Dalatpur and traveled east, soon striking Saturia. It caused tremendous damage across an area of 60 square miles, with Saturia being the hardest hit. Its direct path was about 50 miles long, with winds between 210 to 260 miles an hour. Damage was extensive, as countless trees were uprooted and every home within a 6 square mile kilometer area of the tornado's path was completely destroyed. An article in the Bangladesh Observer stated, The devastation was so complete that barring some skeletons of trees, there were no signs of standing infrastructures. The storm killed roughly 1,300 people and injured 12,000, and left 80,000 people homeless. Here's my take on the deadliest tornado in history. Life is a fragile thing, and Mother Nature constantly reminds us. What are you supposed to do in a situation like that? There's nowhere to run, there's really nowhere to hide, unless, I guess you have a storm shelter or something. I should probably know this. 
April 28, 1945. Benito Mussolini and his mistress, Clara Patacci, are shot dead by Walter Adicio, a member of the Italian resistance movement. Benito Mussolini was an Italian politician who founded and led the National Fascist Party. Mussolini was originally a socialist politician and newspaper journalist. In 1912, he became a member of the Italian Socialist Party, but he was expelled for advocating military intervention in World War I. He served in the Royal Italian Army during the war until he was wounded and discharged in 1917. He was Prime Minister of Italy from the March on Rome in 1922 until his deposition in 1943. As dictator of Italy and principal founder of fascism, Mussolini inspired and supported the international spread of fascist movements. On June 10, 1940, Mussolini decided to enter the war on the Axis side. Despite initial success, the Axis collapse and Allied invasion of Sicily made Mussolini lose the support of the population and members of the fascist party. As a consequence, early on June 25, 1943, the Grand Council of Fascism passed a motion of no confidence in Mussolini. Later that day, King Victor Emmanuel III dismissed him as head of government and had him placed in custody. On September 12, 1943, Mussolini was rescued from captivity by German paratroopers and SS commandos. After meeting with the rescued dictator, Hitler put Mussolini in charge of a puppet regime in northern Italy, the Italian Social Republic causing a civil war. On April 25, 1945, Allied troops were advancing into northern Italy, and the collapse of the Salo Republic was imminent. Mussolini and his mistress, Clara Patacci, set out for Switzerland, intending to board a plane and escape to Spain. Two days later, on April 27, they were stopped near the village of Dongo by communist partisans. After several unsuccessful attempts to take them to Lake Como, they were brought to Mazegra. They spent their last night in the house of the Damaria family. With the spread of the news of the arrest, several telegrams requested that Mussolini be entrusted to the control of the United Nations. The executions took place the following day. The shootings were conducted by a partisan leader who used a fake name, Colonello Valerio. His real identity is unknown, but it is widely believed to have been communist politician Walter Adicio. At least 12 different individuals have been claimed to be the killer including high-level politicians Luigi Longo and Sandro Pertini. Pertini later became General Secretary of the Italian Communist Party and President of Italy. The account of Walter Adicio, or at least its essential components, remained the most credible and is sometimes referred to as the official version. The official version is as follows. On the afternoon of April 28th, Adicio was sent to carry out the execution by Luigi Longo. He was sent with a man named Aldo Lampridi and other partisans who drove to the Dumeria family farmhouse to collect Mussolini and Patacci. After they were picked up, they drove 20 kilometers south to the village of Galino de Mazegra. The vehicle pulled up at the entrance of the villa on a narrow road and Mussolini and Patacci were told to get out and stand along the wall. Adicio then shot them at 4 o'clock in the afternoon with a submachine gun. On the evening of April 28th, the bodies of Mussolini, Patacci, and other executed fascists were loaded into a van and transported south to Milan. They were dumped on the ground in a suburban square near the main railway station during the early morning of April 29th. The choice of location was deliberate. Fifteen partisans had been shot there in August of 1944 in retaliation for partisan attacks and Allied bombing raids, and their bodies had been left on public display. The bodies of Mussolini, his wife, and other fascists were left in a heap, and by 9 a.m. a considerable crowd had gathered, 
The corpses were pelted with vegetables, spit on, pissed on, kicked, and shot. Mussolini's face was completely disfigured by the beatings. Allied forces began arriving on scene during the course of the morning, and an American witness described the crowd as sinister, depraved, and out of control. After a while, the bodies were hung by their feet from the metal girder framework of a half-built oil service station. This mode of hanging had been used in northern Italy since medieval times to stress the infamy of the hanged. However, the reason given by those involved in hanging Mussolini and the others was to protect the bodies from the mob. Movie footage of the event appears to confirm this to be the case, although civilians continued to throw stones from below. Later that afternoon, the American military authorities ordered that the bodies be taken down and delivered to the city morgue for autopsies. A U.S. Army cameraman took photographs of the bodies for publication, including one with Mussolini and Patacci positioned arm in arm. The same afternoon, on April 29th, Adolf Hitler learned of Mussolini's execution, although it is unknown how much detail was communicated to him. Earlier that day, Hitler had recorded in his last will and testament that he intended to choose death rather than fall into the hands of his enemies, and the masses and becoming a spectacle arranged by the Jews. The following day, Hitler committed suicide in Berlin, shortly before the city fell to the Red Army. In accordance with Hitler's prior instructions, his body was immediately burned with petrol, leaving virtually no remains. Here's my take on the death of Benito Mussolini. The end is usually grisly for dictators. You can't stop what's coming and good will prevail. Imagine how hard reality must hit when your back is against the wall and you're staring at a firing squad. Do a Google image search if you want to see how fucked up Mussolini's face was after the execution. It looks like he was on the receiving end of a frying pan in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Mussolini's corpse was even dug up and moved around for a few months after he died, too. April 29th, 1429, Joan of Arc arrives to relieve the Siege of Orleans. Joan of Arc is a heroine of France for her role during the Hundred Years' War, and after the French Revolution, she became a national symbol of France. The Siege of Orleans lasted from October 12, 1428 to May 8, 1429, and was a very important moment of the Hundred Years' War between France and England. It was the French Royal Army's first major military victory to follow the crushing defeat at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, and also the first while Joan of Arc was with the army. The siege took place at the pinnacle of English power during the later stages of the war. The city held strategic and symbolic significance to both sides of the conflict. The siege of Orleans kicked off with an artillery bombardment on October 17th. The English launched another assault on October 21st, but were held back by French missile fire, rope nets, scalding oil, hot coals, and quicklime. The English pushed the French backwards over the next few days after formulating a new plan of attack. The departing French blew up some of the bridges to prevent a direct pursuit. Orléans seemed doomed as the onslaught continued over the next few days, but the timely arrival of the French marshal, Jean de Bras, with sizable French reinforcements, prevented the English from repairing and crossing the bridge and seizing Orléans immediately. The English suffered another setback two days later, when the Earl of Salisbury was struck in the face by debris kicked up in cannon fire. 
English operations were suspended while Salisbury was carried off to recover. After lingering for about a week, he died from his injuries. The Longland English operations following Salisbury's injury and death gave the citizens of Orleans time to knock out the remaining bridges on their end, disabling the possibility of a quick repair and direct assault. The new siege commander planned to surround the city and starve them into submission. Over the next few months, he set up seven strongholds on the north bank and four on the south bank, with the small Isle of Charlemagne commanding the bridges connecting the two banks. In the winter, a Burgundian force of about 1,500 men also arrived to support the English. Orléans' position seemed gloomy. Provisions convoys had to follow dangerous routes to reach the city from the northeast. Few made it through, and the city soon began to feel the pinch. Should Orléans fall, it would effectively make the recovery of the northern half of France all but impossible, and prove fatal to the Dauphin Charles' bid for the crown. When the French estates met in September of 1428, they pressed the Dauphin to make peace with Philip III of Burgundy at any price. The threat to Orléans had prompted the partisans of Richmond and Le Tremoyer to make a quick temporary truce in October of 1428 as well. In early 1429, a French-Scottish force was assembled for the relief of Orléans. Hearing about the dispatch of an English supply convoy from Paris, Charles de Bourbon, Count of Clermont, decided to take a detour to intercept the convoy. He was joined by a force from Orléans that managed to slip past the English lines. The forces attacked the English convoy on February 12th in northern France. The encounter is known as the Battle of the Herrings due to the convoy being filled with a large supply of fish. The English formed a barrier with the supply wagons and lined the exterior with bowmen. Clermont ordered the French to hold back and let their cannons do the damage, but the Scottish regiments, dissatisfied with the missile duel, decided to move in. The French lines hesitated, uncertain of whether to follow or remain back as ordered. Noticing the French were immobilized, the English sensed an opportunity. The English soldiers burst out of the wagon fort, overwhelmed and isolated the Scots, and threw back the hesitant French. The supplies were triumphantly brought to the English soldiers at Orléans three days later. The defeat was disastrous for the French morale, with blame coming from both parties and reopening the fissures between them. Clermont quit the field and retired to his estates, refusing to participate any farther. Once again, the Dauphin Charles was advised to pursue peace with Burgundy, and should that fail, perhaps even go into exile in Scotland. In March, John of Dunois made an irresistible offer to Philip III of Burgundy, offering to turn Orléans over to him, to hold as a neutral territory on behalf of his captive half-brother, Charles, Duke of Orléans. A group of nobles from the city went to Philip to ask him to persuade the Duke of Bedford to lift the siege, and that Orléans could surrender to Burgundy instead. Burgundy would be able to appoint the city's governors on behalf of the Duke of Orleans. Half of the city's taxes would go to the English, the other half would go to the ransom of the imprisoned Duke. A contribution of 10,000 gold crowns was to be made to Bedford for war expenses, and the English would gain military access through Orleans, all in return for lifting the siege and handing the city to the Burgundians. The agreement would have given the English the chance to pass through Orléans and into the capital of Dauphin, which had been the primary motivator for the siege itself. Burgundy hurried to Paris in early April to persuade the English regent John of Bedford to take the offer. But Bedford, certain Orléans was on the verge of falling, refused to surrender his prize. The disappointed Philip immediately withdrew his Burgundian soldiers from the English siege. 
The Burgundian contingent left on April 17, 1429, which left the English with an extremely small army to continue the siege. The decision proved to be a lost opportunity and a terrible mistake in the long run for the English. The same day as the Battle of the Herrings, a young French peasant girl, Joan of Arc, met with French nobleman Robert de Baudricourt. She explained to the skeptical captain her divinely ordained mission to rescue the Dauphin Charles and deliver him his royal coronation at Reims. She had met and been rebuffed by Baudricourt twice before, but apparently this time he agreed to escort her to the Dauphin's court. For years, prophecies had been circulating in France concerning an armored maiden who would rescue France. Many of these prophecies foretold that the armored maiden would come from the borders of Lorraine, where Joan's birthplace is located. As a result, word spread quickly concerning Joan's journey to see the king, and expectations and hopes were high. Escorted by Baudricourt's soldiers, Joan arrived in Chinon, a French commune, on March 6, 1429, and met with the skeptical La Tremoye. On March 9th, she finally met the Dauphin Charles, although it would be a few more days before he had a private meeting where the Dauphin was convinced of her usefulness. Dauphin Charles finally accepted her services on March 22nd. She was provided with a suit of plate armor, a banner, a pageboy, and heralds. Joan's first mission was to join a convoy assembling at another commune called Blois, under the command of Marshal Jean de Lebras, bringing supplies to Orléans. It was from Blois that Joan dispatched her famous message to the English siege commanders, calling herself the Maiden, and ordering them, in the name of God, to be gone or I will make you go. The relief convoy left Blois, escorted by 500 soldiers. Joan had insisted on approaching Orléans from the front, where English forces were concentrated, intent on fighting them immediately. But the commanders decided to take the convoy in a route around the south without telling Joan, reaching the south bank some four miles east of the city. Orléans commander Jean de Dunois came out to meet them across the river. Joan was upset about being deceived and ordered an immediate attack on the nearest English fortress on the south bank. But Dunois, supported by the marshals, protested and with some effort, finally prevailed on her to allow the city to be resupplied before any assaults. The provisions convoy approached the landing port across the river from the English fortress on the north bank. While French fighters kept the English garrison contained, a fleet of boats from Orléans sailed down to the landing to pick up the supplies, Joan of Arc, and 200 soldiers. One of Joan's reported miracles was said to have taken place here. The wind which had brought the boats upriver suddenly reversed itself, allowing them to sail back to Orléans smoothly under the cover of darkness. Joan of Arc entered Orléans in triumph on the evening of April 29th to much rejoicing. The rest of the convoy returned to Blois. With the Torreus complex taken, the English had lost the south bank. There was no point in continuing the siege, as Orléans could now be easily resupplied indefinitely. Here's my take on Joan of Arc. You don't see that from most grown men at any point in history, let alone an 18-year-old woman. Courage and bravery on a level I will never understand once again. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. April 24, 1970, China launches their first space satellite, becoming the fifth nation to put an object into orbit using its own booster. 
Why are we talking about fifth place? Who is fourth? Doesn't matter. April 25th, 1134. The name Zagreb was mentioned for the first time in the Felician Charter relating to the establishment of the Zagreb bishopric around 1094. Nice try. How's your Pollock says what index? Thanks, Kowalski. April 29th, 1910. The Parliament of the United Kingdom passes the People's Budget, the first budget in British history with the intent of redistributing wealth among the British public. Redistributing wealth, huh? I'm broken. I still don't like the sound of that. I'm going to have to take a look at the fine print. That's going to do it for today. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. Pertiner late Pertiner <laughs> Jesus Christ, these fucking Italian names are impossible the first time around. Pertiner <laughs> Oh my god, Pertini. Pertini. Pertiner. <laughs> I can't say it. I can't say it. Pertini. Pertini. <laughs>